We're going to read, uh, beginning in Isaiah chapter 8, to get a little bit of context here. We're going to be in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, but I'd like to read, beginning there in chapter 8, verse 21. Give you a moment to flip there. Isaiah 8, 21 says, They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish, who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden... And the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray together. Lord God, would you just move our hearts to adoration and praise this morning? We want to behold the glory of the Lord and thereby be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And Lord, we recognize this is not something that we can do. It's something that happens through the Holy Spirit as we peer into the word that you have given us. So Lord, may Christ be magnified this morning. May, may the glory come not to us, but to you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you've ever read Isaiah, you you may have found out it can be a difficult book to understand. But as you read through it, you you may have at least picked up that there's this this fluctuation between this idea that God has a a great and a glorious future and plan for His people. And then it'll swing back to this idea of, but they haven't believed the Lord and they haven't obeyed the Lord. So there's this, this sure judgment that is coming. And so you see in Isaiah, uh, glorious future, yet judgment. Glorious future, yet judgment. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. You may have even picked up on it in the text that we read. Chapter 8 ends on a really gloomy note. Israel will face such suffering that they will, they will be disappointed in their king. They will be enraged at God. And they will look to the earth for satisfaction and they won't find it there. It will be anguish 
There's no respite there. There's just darkness. Or as Isaiah says, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. Now this is, this is talking about this time where, where Assyria is expanding as, as a kingdom and as an empire. And, and they border northern Israel. And, and this king of Assyria, he's going to invade northern Israel. And he's going to carry the people away into captivity. And this will be a terrible time of suffering. The text in chapter 8 even says they will be starving. And this, this is uh, even made more difficult by the fact that, that this invasion and this exile, it was avoidable. It was avoidable suffering. Because the time of exile is God's judgment on the nation for their unbelief and for their disobedience. But, but as Isaiah, again, tends to do, chapter 9 opens with this idea of hope. He injects light into the gloomy darkness. Chapter 9 begins with that contrast. But, but the gloom and anguish will cease. Those who walked in darkness and anguish will experience a great light shining upon them. So even in the midst of this impending judgment, God sent forth His Word as a promise and as a comfort to those who would remain faithful to Him. The gloom of chapter 8 would turn to rejoicing in in chapter 9, verse 3. The distress of chapter 8 leads to joy. The consequences of of their disobedience are reversed in verse 5. And the question arises, how? How will darkness become light? How will gloom be turned to joy? How will judgment be taken away and replaced with great reward? And we get our answer in the text this morning. This will be brought about, surprisingly, by the birth of a child. And obviously, not just any child, a kingly, royal, divine child. So 700 plus years before the angelic announcement that we sang about this morning, before the visit of the wise men, Isaiah explains for us the significance of this child, the significance of Christmas, the significance and identity of Christ. So as we turn our attention there to chapter 9, verse 6, we see first then that the king is marvelous in the way he came. The king is marvelous in the way he came. One theme that, that, that is developed over and over in Scripture, and, and it sort of builds to the coming of Christ, is that God often uses the unexpected to accomplish deliverance for his own glory. He often uses the unexpected to accomplish deliverance for his people for his own glory. It's actually a pattern that Isaiah alludes to there in verse 4 when he says, you have broken this oppression, this burden, as on the day of Midian. And what Isaiah is doing is he's alluding to the way that God typically works, and he's pointing us back to this judge named Gideon. 
God had raised up a man named Gideon to deliver Israel from the hand of those who were oppressing Israel at that time. Again, same thing. It was the result of Israel's unbelief. Every man doing what is right in his own sight. So as judgment, God sends a nation to come in and occupy his people. The people cry out for deliverance. God hears their cry, raises up a judge. This one is named Gideon. And Gideon is an unexpected leader. When God tells Gideon to get up and go and save Israel, Gideon responds sort of like Moses did in Exodus, with all the reasons why he shouldn't be able to do it. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. So God chooses an unexpected deliverer. And not only that, what does God do in the book of Judges? He dwindles the army from something like 32,000 down to 300 so that everyone would know that God is the one who brought about this deliverance. Not a large and a skilled army. They don't get the credit. All the glory must go to God. So Isaiah reaches back into Israelite history and plucks this example of how God typically works, and then he applies it to the coming of Christ. Who will bring light into darkness? Who will deliver from this mighty empire that is oppressing God's people? And the answer is a child. A child. At least that's how the deliverance starts. Look there at verse 6. For to us... A child is born. To us, a son is given. Now, where we we tend to emphasize the the, to us in the original language is they sort of front-loaded the idea of the son and the child. So the emphasis falls here, rightly, on Jesus and the way he came. And like our passage last week in Galatians chapter 4, Isaiah highlights for us, both the humanity and the divinity of Christ. Like any child, this one will be born, but as Neil prayed, he is unlike any child. He is unique. The Son, as we know, is not just born. He is actually given. It reminds us of Galatians 4, that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, or John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The Son is not only born like a person, a human, but He is given. He wasn't created. He was sent forth. We just, we just sang about uh, create, uh, not created, but begotten from eternity. He wasn't made, He was given by the Father to us for our benefit and our good. So so what was given is this gift of the union of God and man in one person, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the divine child, born of a woman, yet having no earthly father, begotten from eternity by the Father, with no heavenly mother. 
Right? Someone captured the uniqueness of Jesus by saying it this way. He was older than his mother, yet the same age as his father. Who can, who can that be said of besides Jesus? This child that's going to be born, this child, and when I say, when I'm talking future tense, I'm obviously talking about, like from Isaiah's perspective, it's future. We look back on the birth of Christ. But this child that from Isaiah's perspective will be born is the same child that was spoken of in Isaiah 7, 14, that behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel. God with us. The Messiah will be both human and divine. Jesus is that. He is both born and given. Conceived in the womb of Mary and at the same time called Emmanuel. God with us. And this this union of humanity and divinity in Jesus Christ, two natures in one person, this is actually fundamental to our faith. This is not, you know, when we talk about theological triage, this is not one of those third-tier issues that, hey, we can disagree here and be members of, of the same church. It's not one of those. This is fundamental to our faith. There are lots of purposes for this. And maybe if our goal this morning is just to direct our hearts and our minds to Jesus, we might pause for a minute and just marvel at some of these purposes. What exactly was able to be accomplished because Jesus took on the fullness of humanity? Well, one thing is that Jesus was born and sent forth in order to be the Davidic king promised in the Old Testament who would establish his kingdom forever. That's even mentioned in our text down in in verse 7. On the throne of David, this king will rule. Without the full humanity of Christ and the full deity of Christ, he could not be the promised king. This king was said he will come from the line of David and he will rule forever. Who else can do that? Except a divine child who is born who has taken on human flesh. It's impossible outside of the incarnation of Christ. And as this Davidic king, Jesus, as the God-man, is able to be the true image of God. God put mankind on earth to bear His image. What do you tell man? To bear His image and to be, be a ruler over creation. What happened to Adam and Eve? They were actually overcome by creation. They were ruled by creation. They gave in to sin. They abandoned their position. And creation was cursed with the results of sin. Death flooded this world. And the consequences of sin fell on every man. But Jesus has come and He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He alone, could fulfill the purpose of humanity through His work. And this is, again, tied to the, to the kingdom here. He will bring creation under His authority and He will rule. He will fulfill the original design of man and He invites those who turn to Him in faith to rule and reign with Him in righteousness. Jesus was born also to be our righteous representative. 
the incarnation of Christ allows him to be the perfect representative for sinful man. The Bible says that there's two people who stood as representatives for mankind. The first was Adam. And when he fell, we just talked about it, the whole human race fell into sin. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls Jesus the last Adam, the second Adam. Jesus, too, is a representative. When you repent of sin and turn to him, his actions speak on your behalf. When you come to Christ, he represents you. His righteousness represents you. His obedience is credited to your account. And and, and Jesus had to be the God-man in order to be our perfect, righteous representative. Jesus was born also in order to be the only proper substitute. Hebrews 2, 17 and 18 says this, Therefore he had to, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why did he have to be made like us? Not made isn't created. Don't, don't read too much. So that he might become a merciful, merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In order for Jesus to become the, the proper substitute, he had to come as the divine child. The full humanity and the full deity of Jesus allows him to be the mediator between God and man, the high priest. Jesus came in the likeness of of flesh in order to sympathize with our weakness and temptation. Again, in Hebrews 2, it says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Because the Son of God was born, because he was tempted, There is no temptation that he cannot understand. There is no suffering or sadness that Jesus cannot sympathize with. And therefore, there is no situation in which Jesus is not able to come alongside his people and provide strength and the help you need. Why? Because Jesus has taken on flesh. He comes to our aid in our time of trial. He comes to our aid in time of temptation. And he can. He can be sympathetic with us because he too was tempted and he too suffered. Another way we might marvel at Christ this morning is that he was born in order to be our example. In 1 John 2, 6, it says, He who says he abides in Christ ought to walk in the same way as he walked. Now, we say this a bunch because some people want to just sort of take Jesus and he's only an example. Like, just try to be like Jesus and you'll be fine. Wear your WWJD bracelet and you'll be, you'll be good. Listen, Jesus, we've, we've, I put this one last for a reason. He's so much more than an example. He's so much more than that. He, he shows us that we can't perfectly keep his example. But he's not less than an example. For those of us who claim Christ and claim to follow Christ, we ought to strive to walk as he walked. And Jesus, as a sinless Son of God who has come into this world, He shows us in every circumstance what it is to be human and to please God. To be human and to obey God. 
And so we strive to become like Christ because we've come to Christ. We've received the forgiveness of sins. So without this union, without the incarnation of Jesus, there is no salvation. There is no redemption. To deny this is to deny the, the, is to deny, deny the Christ of the Bible and to deny our very salvation. So there is, as we see, there is no one like Jesus. So this morning, it's not a, lot of, it's not a list of things to do necessarily or things to, to put on other than know this and respond this way, that He is worthy of all of our worship, all of our adoration, and all of our praise. He's worthy of all of your love and all of your devotion. There is no one like Jesus. When the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, this is the God that that we love and serve. One who is willing to humble himself, take on a nature like ours, yet without sin. And as Dan alluded to in his prayer this morning, that the birth of Christ points us to the mission of Christ, which is to suffer on a cross so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. This is the Jesus that we adore. This is the Jesus that we worship. And if there is any question in the text about who Jesus is, if someone were to push back and say, Kyle, I don't know, I think you're reading into this, he's born and he's given, I think you're, well, I don't think you're right. But the titles of verse 6 end any debates. Point number two this morning, the king is glorious in his person. The king is glorious majestic, in other words, and who He is. Look there. And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names, they serve more like titles than actual names that would be that Jesus might be called. They are, they are titles that explain the character of Jesus and the activity of Jesus. They're titles that explain the character and the activity of Jesus. They express who He is and what He does. And as you can tell, just by the reading of them, they underscore the deity of Christ. Now, some have tried to push back against that. Some have tried to argue against it. You know, someone would point out, well, you know, in the surrounding countries of the, the countries that sort of surrounded Israel, they would, they would deify their rulers. And they would give their rulers godlike titles. And so maybe that's what Israel is doing here. So the question is, is that what's going on? Did Israel practice the same kind of deification of their human rulers? No. Israel was, was set apart from the nations that surrounded them. They, they were the nation that, that was taught there, there's only one God. And they were not to take his name lightly, much less call a human king mighty God. One commentator, I like this. He said, It is true that monarchs of the Near East often received exaggerated adulation from their subjects, especially at their enthronement and at subsequent kingdom renewal ceremonies. And he says this, 
But this is not Mesopotamia, but Judah. And Hebrew prophecy was founded on truth, not flattery. It was founded on truth, not flattery. So what is the truth concerning Christ? Well, first, he is a wonderful counselor. Now, if you grew up with the King James, I came to Christ in a church that preached the King James, uh, from the King James, and it's a beautiful translation. But you may have heard this treated as two different titles, right? Wonderful, comma, counselor. It's best, though, to keep these two together. I mean, if you look at the other titles, it's sort of two different names for each. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so this one likely goes together too. Wonderful Counselor. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. You know, we use that word wonderful so so flippantly that we may miss some of its significance here. You know, we might say there's some wonderful biscuits and cinnamon rolls downstairs. And they are. Right? But we want to be careful not to read, you know, the way we sometimes use words flippantly back into the Bible. Right? We want to be careful not to do that. So wonderful here means something like supernatural. It is used to describe the works and the nature of God as opposed to the works and nature of man. You might remember from Psalm 131, I don't grasp at things too wonderful for me or too marvelous for me. We said, well, what's David saying? He's saying, I don't try to grasp things that are God's business. This word wonderful, it's, it's God's work. In Isaiah, the, the, the supernatural wisdom of the Messiah is contrasted with the folly of human wisdom, especially kings like Ahaz. And also in Isaiah 28, 29, Yahweh is called Wonderful in Counsel. So this is, a, this is a title that belongs to God alone. Highlighting that Jesus, as God, is the source of all true wisdom and counsel. Paul said all, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. And therefore, His, his counsel, His word, His will is unfailing. His words are perfectly suited for every occasion and every situation. Jesus had to be wonderful counselor. You might say it this way. This is good news for us because left to our own wisdom, left to our own knowledge, we would be found wandering in darkness, the sort of darkness that Isaiah's already mentioned. Wandering in the darkness of rebellion and sin. Before Christ, we were darkened in our understanding, blinded by our own desires. But now, but now in Christ, though, though we still, we, we, we fall so short, we are convinced actually that, that Jesus only gives good counsel. His will is always righteous and kind even though as those who still wrestle with the flesh, we find it hard at times to keep His Word. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty 
God. Again, this is, this is a title that's used elsewhere for Yahweh, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And in chapter 10, verse 21, it's called Mighty God. Again, this just points us, it, it's, it points us to the deity of Jesus, that He has the same nature as God, as Yahweh, because He is the second person of the Trinity. He is mighty God. This, this conjures up for us uh, images actually of war. You know that word mighty? It's used of, of warriors in the Old Testament. In other words, he is the conquering king, a valiant warrior who goes to war on behalf of his people and accomplishes their redemption. He wins where his people cannot win. He is the hero that dwarfs every other hero. Remember that although Israel was in darkness and gloom because of their Assyrian invaders, don't forget that the reason they had been invaded is that they were walking in darkness in light of their own sin. The darkness they experienced was the result of God hiding His face from them in judgment. So when you hear about this, the, the, the rod of the oppressor being broken, what needs, to, what needs to precede that? Deliverance from the judgment that had befallen them. And this is what Jesus has come to do. They needed a rescuer, not primarily, and we needed a rescuer, not primarily from physical threats, but they needed the cause of their judgment to be removed. What's that? Their sinful hearts. So in a display, then, of God's unfailing wisdom, of the wonderful counselor, the greatest demonstration of the might, the power of God, is the conquering work of Jesus in the death and resurrection of Christ. Jesus, the captain of our salvation, engaged sin and Satan and death and hell and the grave. And He won. When the dust settled, the empty tomb stood as a monument of the victory of Jesus over our greatest threat, our greatest enemy, our own sin. Mighty God, Jesus Christ has met your greatest need. He has delivered you from your greatest enemy and won victory on your behalf. We ask, we can ask again, is there anyone like Jesus? Is there anyone like Jesus? No. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, trust Him. Rely fully on Him. There is no one like Him. You can quit thinking that you can win this battle on your own. In other words, that you can be good enough. You can give up your own wisdom. You can turn to Christ today and be saved from the judgment of your Son. Christmas Day. 2022 might be the day that you quit relying on yourself and you turn to Christ and you say, I, I, I give up trying to earn my own righteousness. I'm trusting in the death and resurrection of Jesus. He is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. Now this one confused me for a long time. 
All right, I wondered if Isaiah's Trinitarian theology needed some work. Right? The Son is not the Father. So what are we what are we doing here, Isaiah? You know, we even we we try around here to be careful uh, to differentiate between the Holy Spirit and God the Son and God the Father. So what's what's going on? How is Jesus titled Everlasting Father? Well, Remember what we said about these titles, that they are expressing His character and His actions. These weren't names that Jesus was actually referred to by Mary. Hey, run out there and get wonderful counselor and tell him to wash up. It's time for supper. These names are descriptive of His character and of His personality. He is the kind of Savior. He is the kind of person that these names portray Him to B. So Isaiah is not confused in his, in his theology. He isn't saying the Son is the Father, and the Father is the Son. That's an old heresy that would get you burned at the stake. Remember my friend Jared one time tried to answer in theology class, what is the Trinity? And he answered it in a way that suggested the Son is the Father and the Father is the Son. And our professor said, you get the wood, I'll bring the marshmallows, and we'll burn them at the stake for being a heretic. All right. Isaiah's not confused here. Instead, he's using Father as a description of the character and the type of Savior that Jesus is. He is fatherly in his treatment of his people. And as, as we get past sort of uh, you know the, the nuanced argument of why Isaiah would say this, don't lose the wonder of it. When you think of the first two titles, wonderful counselor, mighty God, this is the king. How will this king relate to his subjects? Like a father relates to his son or his daughter. He will relate to his people like a father. My question for you this morning is, do you, do you think about Jesus that way? very often, that He actually cares for you, that He delights in you, that the sort of compassion that a father has for his children, Jesus has an even greater compassion toward you. Do you think about Christ that way? You can believe that. And it's not because we we somehow deserve to be treated that way but because that's Jesus' nature and character. It's His character. And unlike us, unlike our fathers or any other fathers in the room who failed this morning to live righteous, Jesus is never too busy. He's never too preoccupied with His own thing. He's never too disinterested to help you in your time of need. How wild that the the child that is born is everlasting Father. Lastly, he is called Prince of Peace. You heard Luke chapter 2 read earlier. The multitude of the heavenly angels, what did they proclaim at the announcement of Jesus' birth to the shepherds? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. We said, we said a lot of this stuff about the child we're sort of looking back on. 
But a lot of the stuff about the government resting on his shoulders, this, the kingdom that will be ruled with justice and righteousness, some of those things we're looking forward to the fulfillment of. So we might say the day is coming when Jesus will subdue all opposition to him. We see it there in verse 7. When Jesus returns, he will rule in peace and righteousness. He will take up the burden of, of ruling on this earth, and the government will fall upon his shoulder. You know, the U.S. is, is wise in some ways. You know, we, we sort of wisely separate powers, so there's these checks and balances, because at some level, the founders understood one man can go, will go probably a little bit crazy with his power and authority. So we need some checks and balances in there. But with Jesus, peace will be achieved on earth when he exercises his authority alone and rules over the nations. He's the only one that you can trust with that sort of authority. He's the only one. Instead of using violence and coercion like the Assyrians, the kingdom of Christ is built on righteousness and justice. And there will be no limit to his authority because he's God in the flesh. We can have great hope in light of this glorious future. But there are ways today, not just hope looking forward, but there are ways today in which we can experience the goodness of, of the Prince of Peace. One way we might say Jesus is the Prince of Peace because He achieved for us peace with God. He achieved for us peace with God. We don't even have to go outside of Isaiah to see this. The one that is miraculously conceived, the one who is born of a virgin, the one who is given to us, the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, has made it possible for you to have peace with God. And he did it by taking the penalty of our rebellion on himself. Listen to Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. What will this child do? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus is the only way that we might have peace with God. And he did it by taking on himself the chastisement that our sin deserved. So that anyone who turns to him and trusts in him might be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace in that he achieved for us peace with others. Right? If you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and I have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and we have peace with one another. We're told in the book of Ephesians that Jesus Christ has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles, people who historically had great animosity and opposition to one another, that they stood opposed to each other, are united in Christ. There's this one new man. The barrier has been broken down. 
And so in God's church, there's a standard, not, not, not that the world's division would enter in and the way the world wants to divide up people would, would be uh, seen in the church. All those are broken down in Jesus Christ. We're called to maintain the unity that Jesus accomplished for us. And that's good news for us, that we don't have to create this unity. We don't have to find things to unite around. We are united to Christ, and therefore we are united with one another. And Paul essentially says, just don't mess it up. Just don't mess it up. Third, we might say Jesus is the Prince of Peace and that we have peace with Him. Jesus said to His disciples in John 6, 16, 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you, have, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. There is tribulation. There is persecution in this world for sure. Perhaps for some in this room this morning, Christmas is harder for you than any other time of year. Perhaps such suffering has come upon you that this is a, this is a more difficult season. Maybe it brings up the memory of the loss of a loved one. Maybe you feel the sting of a failed marriage at, at this time of year. Perhaps there's a prodigal son out there or a daughter out there that you just long to come home. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulations. But take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. The world's hardships and the evil that it can throw at you, they will not triumph in the end. They cannot win. Jesus says that at the end of the day, you can take heart because we know who triumphs. So 700 and a few years after Isaiah wrote these words, the angel Gabriel told a young virgin named Mary that she has been chosen to be the mother of the Savior. And her question is, how can this be? How can this be? And I think that's probably similar to the way Isaiah meant for his audience to respond to this text. How can this be? How can this be? The wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, was born a helpless child. How can this be? The event that we commemorate at Christmas time, the thing that we look back on was something that Isaiah was looking forward to. And so this morning we ask, how can this be? How can this be? Isaiah answers that in the last line, in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Ultimately, it is the burning passion the Father has for the glory of the Son that guarantees the fulfillment of all God's promises. It guaranteed the giving of the Son. It guarantees the rule of the Son. Why? The zeal of the Lord will do it. The passion of God for His own glory. The child has been born the Son has been given. We have seen the glory of God and His titles. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, 
Prince of Peace. How can this be? The zeal of the Lord. God desired it from before time began. And He does all that He says He will do. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for Jesus Christ, the gift that He is. May we pause and wonder and stand in adoration at Jesus Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.